Hello, I'm Pastor Keith Babb III, and I want to thank you so much for tuning into the podcast of the Way Church of Tampa Bay. Our desire is that as a result of the word, that you no longer settle with simply coming to church, but you become the church. I pray that you enjoy this broadcast and that it challenges you, that it convicts you, and that it changes you. Thank you again, and let's enter into today's message. Good evening, everybody. Well, good afternoon. I'm so glad that you guys are on right now. If you are on, don't worry about it. I know it may not be a large audience at this time, but we will premiere this again on Tuesday. But if you are on, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to share this broadcast. I believe it's a critical um, conversation that we're going to have because we cannot have the conversation of unity until we understand our history with disunity. I think the history for people of color um, as it pertains to racism and racial injustice is a critical conversation and it's one um, that we fail to have in an in-depth manner. I believe this morning or this afternoon I have two individuals that'll give us a little bit more clarity as it pertains to the history of people of color, especially in this country. I laid a biblical foundation for how racism and racial injustice is a historical issue. Um, And I believe now we need a practical um, conversation on how it's been an issue throughout our country. Uh, So this morning I want to introduce two individuals who we're going to share a little more about this. I'm going to step outside of the view of the camera so that we can focus on these two individuals as we have this dialogue. And here's what you have the opportunity to do. If you are on live, you do have an opportunity. I want you to comment. I want you to put comments in the the comment box. And I also want you to um, post your questions. If you have some questions for my panel, I want you to post that because we need to have a level of understanding of how this issue has been prevalent and pervasive in our country. So at this time, I'm gonna, I, don't, I wanna make sure that I do them justice and I wanna give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. I want you, if you could, start with, starting with Minister Sharon West, if you could give us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, and if you could just uh, give us, tell us about your upbringing, your professional background, and if you could also, um, as kind of look a tagline to this, give us a brief highlight of one of your most adverse personal encounters with racism and racial injustice. Minister Sharon West. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My background, my family, we were runaway slaves from Dorchester County, um, Maryland. My uh, family escaped in 1858. Both sides of my family settled in Ontario. Um, One side of my family returned to the United States in the early 1900s, and my mother's family returned in the um, the 20s. Both my parents were raised in Buffalo, went to the Buffalo Public Schools. I attended the public schools um, for some time. My dad worked at the post office. I have two sisters and a brother. I was in middle school. I integrated Buffalo uh, State College campus, um, in which they put two black girls and two black boys in each class. What really influenced my activism as a child was my church, Salem United Church of Christ. Um, It was a progressive uh, integrated church. And let me say, back in the day, on Tuesday afternoons at 2.30, we were dismissed for religious instruction where we could go to a neighborhood church and learn about God. And that church was very involved in the 
neighborhood and had a lot of activities for the children. And that's how my family joined um, that church. And I have to say that the United Church of Christ, they practice congregational-based organizing to answer God's call to love your neighbor and to stand with the marginalized and work with God for a much just society. They practice Micah 6 and 8. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our Lord. And they have practiced that throughout their existence. And that motivated me to get involved. Uh, they brought, when I was a teenager, well, I should say a young adult, they helped fund to bring in the industrial um, area foundations. This is the same organization that trained Barack Obama to do community organization. They brought an organization called the um, Build Organization to challenge the power structure. Meanwhile, we as young adults, we were off on our own and we organized what is called Us Now. We held and organized a convention. We had 700 kids that came together. We didn't have any adult involvement and we put our list of demands of what we wanted to see. We worked with Bill. We sat in um, City Hall several times. We had um, civil disobedience. However, we were not arrested or beaten like our um, Southern counterparts. However, I did get a visit from the FBI to my parents' house to wanna know, or for me to tell them what our plans and how we were gonna protest, which I found really laughable. Let me say this, that um, because of my involvement in the, uh, that movement, it really showed me that I had to go into government. I had to be part of public service to, be, to change the system from the inside out and to be at that table to be a voice for the people who could not speak themselves. I've had a career of over 37 years in government on the state level, on the county level, and the local level, working for programs to improve and provide assistance to um, needy individuals and minorities. Well, thank you, Minister Sharon West. I, I, one of the um, unique things about your life that I love, and I'm grateful that you're a part of this panel discussion, is that for you, racism and racial injustice is not only a learned issue, um, you've definitely um, articulated that, that you have an understanding of the historical perspective around that, but it's also a lived issue. Uh, you've lived through it, you've lived through it um, not only personally, but professionally. And I believe you'll be able to give us some great insight on this morning, so thank you so much. Let me just one, add one other thing which you asked me about to give you a personal. Um, there's a part of Buffalo, which is called South Buffalo, in which black people never moved in. It's like an open secret because the hostility. I went to an event down there and I went early because I knew I had to get out of there before um, it got dark. As I went to my car, two young men were walking, white individuals were walking by and they physically attacked me. They tried to um, beat me up and I ran back in the building and got saved and someone walked me to the, um, to the car. I could tell you another circumstance where I got on a Greyhound bus and the woman refused to let me sit by her. And they took me off the bus and put me on another bus. 
which I found totally outrageous. And I can also tell you about the 22 caliber killer in Buffalo in the, I think it was the late 80s, where he killed over 20 people, black men, went through the community terrorizing. Uh, 10 were in Buffalo, um, some were in New York, some were in, um, in Georgia, and but this individual terrorized our community. You stood at a bus stop or you came out of a grocery store, can you imagine? And he did this over a, a, a six month period. So those are incidents that I can tell you that I experienced um, in terms of being terrorized as being a black person. Well, thank you. And uh, I think that just reiterates the fact that our history was severe. Uh, so thank you, Minister Shannon West. Uh, I, I've um, had the pension of calling you doctor, but I was corrected that you're not a doctor, but I believe that you have the insight of one who has a doctoral degree. So Mr. Imani, I, if you could, uh, just the same question I want to pose to you, where are you from? You could just share your upbringing, professional background, and if you could give us a highlight of one of your most adverse personal encounters with racism and racial injustice. Okay, um, good afternoon all. Um, my name is Imani um, Asakili. Um, um, through my parents, um, I'm a Geechee. Um, my mother is from the low county of South Carolina, Hampton County, Estill, um, and my father is from Savannah. So we claim to be um, um, Geechees. Um, current, I was born in, in Brooksville, Florida, and that's my formation. That's where I, I came up. That's where I was um, um, educated at. Um, um, it was very um, segregated um, um, community. Um, pretty much like all southern um, communities, but to me, um, I thought it was very normal. Um, I, I had a, um, a good life, a good journey. Um, I had a loving community. I had loving teachers and, and everything that I had. I, I enjoyed the community we had, even though it was deficient um, by other standards and evaluation, but it was an incubator and it nurtured me well and I like to pay homage to all of those elders who were deacons and mothers in the church and store owners and, and everybody who helped build the community, the custodians at the schools. Uh, I, I just thank them and I look back um, over my life um, and reflect frequently and um, I don't have any complaints. I haven't been cheated any kind of way whatsoever at all. And I know in the 60s, um, the late 60s, they started the public school integration um, process movement. And then I had a chance to evaluate. Um, my parents sent me up um, on the third year of the public integration um, process. And um, that was a traumatic experience for me. I, I survived it. I hated every day of it. As an eighth grade student, I never could understand why it was necessary that I had to go and sit next to a white student to get an education. I wanted to understand why did the community feel is that black teachers were inherently inferior some kind of way or another, that we were willing to give up our school, to give up our culture, to give up our heritage. And you know, it took Tampa a while to get it to, and they restored Blake, and they have restored Middleton, but every community was not as fortunate 
as Hillsborough County has been in, in that regard. Um, so, but I survived it. I, I stayed a year. I left, I went back to the black school, not knowing that they had moved the 12th, 11th, and 10th grade to the white school. And so I went back as a ninth grader. I had the greatest school year of my life. I, I was just glad to be back with my friends, my partners, and, and the whole work in my community. And it was to the extent that I never went back up to Hernando High School, a white school, not one time during that school term. That's how traumatic the experience was. I wanted out, I didn't want to get back up there. And even when the school year ended in 1969, I still was not mentally prepared to go up to Hernando High School, the white school. They were wiping out all secondary school, black school, sending them to the white school. Um, so that was it. So I was an athlete. I, I, you know, I played football and basketball. And um, so there was no justice for blacks in athletics um, at the time, particularly in football. There were limitations on how many blacks could play on the field at one time. Um, you could not, um, not that they wouldn't start a black as quarterback. They wouldn't even let a black guy try out for quarterback. Um, so, you know, you dealt with all of this unfairness and, and things like that. And we had been taught to be twice as good, to take more than the white guys would take. You know what I'm saying? And just fight to no end. And we did that, but we still didn't get no justice. Wow. Wow. And I, I appreciate uh, just that backdrop, uh, Mr. Omani, that you're teaching me something I was not aware um, that blacks were actually limited on athletic teams. So uh, that's something that critical for our audience to understand as well. But I will say this uh, concerning both of you. One of the things that I just, it's kind of been illuminated just by from the brief discussion is one, that you survived, and then two, that you're successful. Um, so that's relevant to our audience as well. Although we have some civil unrest, we can survive this and we can yet be successful. And the other thing, before we go to our next question, I know many people of color may be aware of Ruby Bridges, who was a young lady who had to deal with integrations in schools. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Ms. Sharon West, that's a part of your um, history. And it was good that you shared your history as well, Mr. Armani. And we don't realize that we have Ruby Bridges among us who can talk about um, integration of schools from that aspect and how difficult it was. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, here, here's what I want to do. I want to pose this question to you, um, Mr. Armani, and then we'll go to you, Minister West. Um, how do you think racism and racial injustices have been strategically and systemically integrated into our society? I think you touched on it a little bit, but I want to kind of pull that out from your uh, kind of personal experience you may have. I think racism and racial injustice have been strategically and systematically integrated into our society and all aspects and all walks in our engagement and our journey. I can't imagine just not one, but probably the one that troubles me the most. Uh, maybe it should be economic, but that's along the faith line. Is that uh, when I look at the Southern Baptist movement um, and that they only acknowledge their error 
and choosing to, to, to be a part of the Confederacy versus to follow scripture. And they didn't offer a forgiveness for that decision until 2015, just five years ago. So, you know, that, that's one of the ones that has bothered me. And I was just looking um, recently, you know, just last night, last evening, um, on Facebook, and, and I was looking at some things. So when we were talking about taking down the, all of these Confederate um, images and statues and things around the country, and someone put up, well, what about this graven in image of the Savior as not as a person of color, but the Bible talks about graven I images. The Israelites, Aaron and all of those guys, got in trouble about creating these these idols and, and feeding it out to the world and, 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 and in the psychological and spiritual impact that that has had. I can't think of any aspect of life um, that racism and racial injustice has not um, cremated um, our society and our lives and things like that. So, I, I, you know, I, I can't imagine, um, I can't be surprised about anything, and I haven't been surprised by anything along those lines. I appreciate that, Mr. Armani, and I think you said something critical. We're having these conversations because we want to unify the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, I expect the world to operate in a certain light, but you would expect the church to operate in a different light. And it's critical to point out that many predominantly white denominations have failed, one, uh, to um, denounce racism and racial injustice that's not only prevalent in the world but that has been prevalent in the church so I appreciate how uh, you brought that point up and I'm going to let you uh, um, add on to that but I also want you to tell us uh, um, your uh, I know you didn't give us a little bit about your what you do professionally okay, I will do. if you could just tell I us where do. you work and what you do Okay, let me, let me just add I want to add this to it um, a year ago in March 2000 in 19, I was meeting with a ministerial alliance group, uh, a, a Caucasian group, and, and this was close to the tail end of March, and we were approaching the, well, actually it was two years ago, it was in 2018, uh, the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King martyrdom, and I asked the group to consider, um, you know, honoring, paying homage to this this significant um, um, date coming up on the calendar, April 4th, um, 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 2018, which been 50 years for Dr. King's assassination. And um, so, you know, they, they just cast it aside and brushed it aside, it was no big deal. Uh, I didn't fight with them. Then I asked them to, they were preparing for National Day of Prayer, which I think it may be the first Thursday in May. Um, and they were talking about what they were going to be praying for. So I asked them to pray for social justice. And they told me, no, they were going to do like the Apostle Paul, pray for the government leaders and, and things and other of that nature. So, you know, I, I think I've been affirmed um, today um, and, and, and over the past month about seeing where the world was then and where we are now. And they asked recently about getting together and meeting with some individuals. Uh, so that was one of the things. I just wanted to add that wrinkle in. Um, I'm the director 
of global multicultural awareness um, and special assistant to the president at Pasco Hernandez State College. Um, I've been there for 33 years and I'm involved in a host of community engagement and cultural activities um, in Pasco and Hernandez counties. Well, thank you. And I will say this, uh, I, I, I'm grateful for uh, the progress that you, you're witnessing because uh, in, that, in that alliance, but it is sad to know that it took 2020 for that progress to happen. Minister Sharon West, if you could uh, share that same question I want to pose to you, how do you think race, racism and racial injustice has been systemically and strategically uh, integrated into our society? Well, racism is in the DNA of America from the first day that we were stolen from our homeland in Africa in 1619. Our freedom has had to be um, an amendment to the Constitution. We were three-fifths of a person in, originally in the Constitution. So we went through 250 years of slavery, another 100 years of Jim Crow laws to keep us their foot on our necks, and in the last 60 years, the civil rights law, the door has been opened somewhat. I mean, we did make progress. But I will tell you, even after the passage of the um, civil rights law, we had to go to court in Buffalo. We had to go to court to integrate the public schools. We had to go to court to, um, for um, the fire department. My uncle put that suit in, and I have to tell you, throughout, throughout his career, he was harassed on his job and denied appoint, um, a, uh, upgrade, you know, appointments because he put that suit together. The community college was sued, and as I said, the police department, even public housing, had a discrimination suit. When I became the director of public housing in Buffalo, I had to settle that suit because um, minorities, uh, the housing that they were living in was inferior to where the whites were living in. And then also, we had one uh, public housing project that we owned that they had formed a co-op, and they had systematically prevented black people from moving in there. Wow. You know, so I was able to work with the mayor and eliminate that uh, and not renew their contracts so that could be fully um, integrated. Okay. I have a follow-up question for you, mm -hmm. and I, I, I want to specifically pose this to you. And I'll, I'll highlight this before I pose the second question. You would uh, I thank you for bringing the perspective of how um, people of color were impacted in northern states because of many, um, you know, African Americans. We always have this this notion that everything was well in northern mm -hmm. states, and that's why many people mm -hmm. many people of color flooded there. Um, but it's critical to understand that there were still some levels of injustice going on even in northern states. But I want to say this, what are, you, what are your thoughts, given the fact um, that there were so many injustices in public housing, um, I want to get your thoughts on how do you feel about mixed income housing now, knowing that a lot of um, low income minorities are being moved out of areas where they were uh, traditionally lived in terms of public housing, and now moved out, having to find different areas to live due to this new element of mixed housing that a lot of housing authorities are moving towards and government entities. Do you feel like there's a level of injustice even in that aspect? Um, and do you feel like they have a, um, do they have every ability to find comparable housing and also in a safe neighborhood 
when it's limited to only a certain number of individuals when you have these mixed housing complexes. Can you uh, speak well, to that? Let me say this, that concept of mixed housing, when I was in um, public housing about 20 years ago, that was something that was emerging. And when we did our Hope 6 project, we wanted to have mixed income working people along with the other folks that, um, that weren't working because it upgrades and we, I mean, it is important to have people working in your neighborhood and it, it, it gives a lot of hope to the people. But it's interesting now that those same neighborhoods with public housing, they want to gentrify. Yeah. Okay, they want to come back and take that. We could rebuild right where they are, upgrade. I mean, money, some of that housing is over 100 years old or almost 100 years old and antiquated. And so we can um, do mixed income housing. There are people from the old neighborhood that want to move back, you know, who are successful, who want to move back. If it was quality housing, they would move into that housing. They want to be in their neighborhoods. Well, and thank you for bringing up that point, because I think a lot of times we can see policies that look like progress, but it's really to appease us. And uh, other times it can look like progress on surface, um, but if we don't have ample, I know one of the biggest issues um, that are in low-income communities is that there's a lack of affordable housing. So if we're going to have mixed development housing, we also need to ensure on the other hand, that there's enough, the capacity for uh, affordable housing is also available for yeah. those that were trying to move out uh, of those communities. Let me say this. I've seen examples of affordable housing in really wealthy neighborhoods where the houses look like townhouses were attached, so they look like a, 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 a mini mansion. You know, I've seen examples of where the outside of the house looks the same as the you know, upper income housing, and so they didn't have the same things in the house. But they were living in those neighborhoods, so they had many of the assets and resources that would be available to them that weren't normally available in the neighborhoods that they had lived in previously. Well, thank you. Thank you, Minister West. Uh, I want to um, give you the next question to tee off on this, and then we'll bring it back to you, Mr. Amani. Okay. Um, how do you think the traumatic history of being stolen and enslaved has adversely impacted people of color today. Um, just understanding, although I may not be a person who experienced it uh, personally, but how do you think the uh, um, overarching or continual effects of that have affected people of color today? Could you um, share well, on that? I think that um, white privilege has created that we're 100 yards back when we start the race. So we're never given the opportunity. I mean, they have networks, they help each other. We don't have those opportunities. You know, our self-image for many years, there were nobody on, on, that looked like us. I can remember as a child, when you saw colored people or Negroes on TV, we all ran to go see them on TV. You know, um, now that, uh, Black culture has become more popular and we have celebrities and like that. You know, we have a few people that are doing well, but the mass majority of our folks are still um, suffering. I mean, the income, the gap in income is just absolutely staggering between what white families make and what black families make. I think the medium income may be 70,000 for a white family and for us it's $30,000. 
You know, how can, how you, how can you, I mean, we're just surviving from day to day, you know, and, um, and expect to keep up, you know, try to keep up with the Joneses. You know, so that, that is what has put us behind the elbow. And I also think, I, I can remember a movement in the 80s and 90s to integrate our history in the school system. And because that did not happen, the truth wasn't told. But I will say this, that the subsequent integration at folks like me that came in helped this movement because now they know us. They have a relationship with us, having gone to school, you know, and they're sick and tired of it, just like, you know, and they're talking to their parents, so that, that's a good thing. I really have been encouraged by what I see in terms of the um, uh, protesters and, what, and, and that they're keeping at it. You know, it isn't just a weekend march. You know, we're going like on three weeks on this. But the point is, is not only the march, we gotta see the what's going to be done to change things afterwards. I mean, it's good, the police reform, that's great, but there's a lot, lot more that has to be done. Well, to thank help. you. And here's what I want my audience to do. I, I'm, I'm pulling solutions as you guys are talking. We need to be thinking about solutions as, as my panelists are speaking. Let's, uh, let's be taking notes. I, I, there's a couple of things that you, you stated that I want, I, I really love, and I want to, I'm going to give you an opportunity to elaborate on this a little bit, but one, you talked about networks, and I think it's critical for us as people of color and African Americans to reestablish those networks. There are already some existing networks uh, where we can get our support from ourselves. You have the NAACP, uh, you have uh, um, definitely uh, predominantly African-American sororities and fraternities. We need to make sure that we're plugged into networks that support our own. Um, so I want, I want you to talk a little bit about how that has influenced people of color and how it has also advanced people of color. Um, but then also you talked about um, where are leaders? Where are leaders um, in the African-American community? How do we get our children now to see leaders that are not simply athletes unless these athletes are using their voice and their influence to, pro, um, to promote progress, um, but where are our leaders? And then you also talked about our history. I think it's, the onus is on us as people of color to know our history. Um, if they're not gonna integrate that back into the schools, I believe it needs to start in the homes. Families need to be teaching that history to their children if it's not gonna be taught in the school system. But I want you to talk about really quickly before we go to doc, um, Mr. Amani. I keep speaking doctor over you. I think you're gonna, you need to get your doctor, <laughs> your doctor degree. Uh, okay, but can you tell me how critical are these networks? And I know you're a part of um, a sorority. How critical has, that, has those kind of um, organizations and entities being in the progress of people of color? And how, um, what would you like to see them do today? to co create a level of solution in our community. Let me say this, I had two mentors, both men. I had a white mentor and a black mentor who opened doors for me, you know, and it was important for me. I just didn't wanna be limited to my, um, my community in terms of being able to voice my support or, or in terms of issues. So the white mentor was able to walk open doors so I got to sit on a hospital board and do some other things, was involved with um, United Way that 
allocated money to community groups. So I think we have to look at, and I say it's very important on your job to get you a mentor, you know, so that we can grow as individuals. And um, they're the ones that recommend who gets promoted. You know, so yes, um, it's important to participate in groups like the 100 Black Women, uh, the Deltas, the AKAs, because they also support us. Because I'll tell you, many times I was the only minority person in my job or in my department, and it was because of my sister's support that I was able to make it through. Because many a night, I, I, I was traumatized and I had issues that I had to deal with. It is only because they were there to support me that I made it through. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm going to say this, and I, I, I respect my elders, so I'm going to receive what you said, Minister Sharon West. And you talked about mentors of um, that just don't look like you, and I appreciate that. I think, think that's critical, and we're actually going to have some uh, pastors and some faith leaders that don't look like myself that are going to be, a, uh, we're going to have a, a subsequent panel discussion about how do we unify as the body of Christ. So I think it's important, one, um, to have mentors that don't look like you, and I think that's critical. But here's the other piece that I think personally, too. Um, you said something about they are the ones that are going to promote us, about if we have mentors on our job. And I, I, I would like to see, I think this is just a personal agenda of mine, to where we can have um, positions of authority where we can promote okay, ourselves. Absolutely. So I think that's critical as well, um, just in terms of um, how do we build infrastructure for the black community and people of color and how do we work towards that end. But yes, ma'am. Let me just say this. One of the things that I did in my career is wherever I left, I always left folks behind who could carry the legacy on and represent and carry the torch higher. Because I know what, what good is it if it was just me? You know, so I have to make sure that our future um, contains people who are also going to pass this on so we can be more inclusive and, and to continue the change within the institution that they work in. Well, thank you. So that means for my audience, as people of color, once we have levels of influence and power, we need to be mentoring those that are around us in our circles of influence, on our jobs, and whatever capacity that is. As Minister Sharon West stated, she's mentoring and pouring into others. We need to do likewise. So, Mr. Armani, I want to give that to you. Um, how do you think our traumatic history of being stolen um, and enslaved has adversely impacted us today? In many ways, uh, let me count a couple. Um, first, uh, just from a health standpoint, that the impact that the slavery had and our survival in relationship to hypertension with the sensitivity to salt, and that, you know, seem like regardless of what we try to do, um, we are just struggling with hypertension at rates far beyond any other group, which creates a cardiac um, problem. So. Health is a real big thing, even if you don't have money and you have health, uh, you're in a pretty good position. Um, so the second part of it, the system has always been rigged and the system is, is rigged now. So, and is rigged in a way um, primarily economically um, for wealth, um, about where, where wealth lies and how to access wealth and how to secure wealth. Um, and ever the, the other area has been traumatic in, 
and the, and the seriousness of the competition for our minds and things like that to divide us um, against one another. You know what I'm saying? It's always the story about um, the white man's ice is colder. So not willing to support one another's um, business. Um, you know, and I don't know why we spend our money places where we are not wanted. I wouldn't. Of that nature. So it's just so many uh, different ways the, the justice system, just across the board, um, it has had a tremendous impact on our psyche. And that's, uh, man, that's, that's a loaded answer that you provided, Mr. Armani. And I will say this there's something um, in social services called trauma informed care. And I think one of the critical things that we need to understand as people of color is that we've experienced trauma in our past and we're experiencing trauma now and that has, that's a direct correlation with our health. Um, and I think we, we, we uh, don't always put two and two together to realize that trauma has an adverse impact on our health. I think you said something also um, critical that I love um, is our level of division also within the African American community. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we have to work on. We cannot unify with other races until we unify with, with ourselves. And I think it's critical that we have to not see ourselves as the enemy. Um, so thank you. Would you like to add to that? No. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for that. So much in that. Um, I'm going give to it, give it off to you, Mr. Money, and then we're going to pass it to Minister West. What do you consider the most critical aspect of people of color that has been stripped from us due to racism and racial injustice? I'm, and you could speak on maybe our identity, our rights, our value as individuals. What do you think is the most critical aspect that, we, that we've lost? I, I would say um, our identity and being able to claim an identity. Um, you know, saying that um, some of us don't want to be called black. Um, some of us don't want to be associated with Africa. But, you know, we're African if we're going around and saying that um, you know, I'm Trinidadian, I'm Bahamian, um, I'm this and that. All of those things divide us. We have a common link that unifies all of us and that we are, we are African. And once you have stole someone's identity and you give somebody an identity or fix their minds in a sense that they deny themselves and they take up someone else's identity, this is something that you see and scripture and things that, you know, these, these, these Israelites was always getting in trouble because they was going to and, and claiming somebody else's That's culture. True. So, and you, so you see history kind of repeating itself. Um, so, you know, I, I think with Black Lives Matter, um, no one saw Black Lives Matter um, being so effective today uh, to the extent that what we would have expected five years ago maybe when it first came on the scene. Now it's legit, but before they tried to attack it, um, saying, oh, you, are, you know, you're, you're separating us and, and the whole works. But now it's a whole different story. When James Brown came out and said, I'm black and I'm proud, what that did to folk and the fear that it, it, it caused and things. Not that you created any crime, not that you attacked anyone, but you claim an identity that 
hey, I'm going to take this potash out of my hair. Mm. I'm going to take this clothespin off of my nose. Yeah. I'm going to accept this big wide nose that God gave me. I'm not going to be ashamed to eat watermelon because somebody said um, I, I like watermelon. I'm not going to be ashamed to eat chicken because somebody say I, I, I eat chicken and watermelon. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I'd rather have chicken any day over roast beef. So, you know, so you claim your identity, uh, identify, teach identity um, to our children. And they are under assault all the time. I mean, all of the stuff in the media and everything that they get, you don't have to have all of those things. And, uh, you know, and I think that will kind of help solve a lot of problems. That would be an extra strength Tylenol. And I, I, I appreciate this. And here's one of the things that I think the body of Christ um, has tried to water down is the identity of people of color. Yeah. And here's why I say this is significant. I think we've heard a lot on one end of the spectrum that, oh, there's no race in the sight of God, and we shouldn't be focused on that. And yes, to one extent, when we talk about salvation, that's true. But if you look throughout the Bible, they will always identify who those people were. They were, they were the children of Israel. They were the Samaritans. They were the Ammonites. So race and, and cultural identity was significant to God. And if it was not, then he would not have made that evident in scripture. So I think it's critical for people of color to trace your identity, to know your identity, and watch this also embrace your identity because it's who God created you to be. So thank you so much, Mr. Armani. Um, same question to you, uh, Minister Sharon West. Is it our identity? Is it our rights? Is it our value? What do you think it is? I think it's all of those things. I guess what breaks my heart the most is that the innocence of our children are broken and stolen from them because they have to know about the world that they live in and the opportunities that are not available to them and how they have to behave and how they have to act. I had someone tell me that their, their um, white friends, their mother, had to talk to them how they had to behave when they were out with um, black teenagers because it was different. I mean, they be wild now. They don't have to deal with the same things that our children, um, you know, us being concerned if our children are gonna come home. I mean, that that is just heartbreaking. So as long as there is white privilege, we will never have an evil, uh, even or level playing field. Yeah, I, I, I love that when you talk about our innocence. One of the things, that, and this is just resonates with me, when I see my daughter, she wants to wave at everybody she sees. She see no matter what they look like, she wants to wave and she wants to get a response of somebody uh, reciprocating that wave. But we live in a society where that's not always gonna be the case. And that she has to understand that at some point that innocence is gonna have to be removed and may, the way our society is now may be removed um, sooner rather than later. And that's a, a sad reality, so thank you. Uh, Minister Shan West for that. Um, let me ask you this. How would you describe the severity of our current state of people of color? I know you talked about progress, um, but when you look at the landscape of people of color, when you look at what's going on in our nation, when you look at who's leading our nation, um, how do you think um, the severity or the pervasiveness of racial injustice and racism is evident today. What do you think about it when you look at our society well, today? The biggest thing is the wealth gap. Bet the difference between uh, what white families have 
their values, I mean, what they're worth and what we have. You know, um, white people, you think a million dollars is wealthy, right? For black people, if you have over $100,000, you know, people consider you think you have some money. You know, I mean, it's just a disgrace in turn, and it only continues to get more and more and more. You know, my um, home ownership, you know, the whole way that you acquire wealth in this um, nation, our communities were redlined, you know, and banks had to have plans, you know, to force them to um, loan us money. You know, so, I mean, they don't do the thing because it's the right thing to do. They only do it when they are forced, you know, and, and, and that's shameful. Yeah. You know, we serve a God of love. He didn't say love the white person or the black, he said love all my children. We serve a God of justice, justice for all. You know, and that's where we as a Christian uh, community need to come together because Sunday remains one of the most segregated um, days of the week yes. in terms of the white churches and the uh, black churches. And I'm like, are we serving the same Jesus? Yeah. You know, but we got to stop dealing with what I call my pastor Brown used to say, the God of our understanding, how we create a God in our mind to be rather than who the God really is. Amen. Thank you so much for that. that, that something you said, and I, there's a couple things you said. One, uh, a lot of institutions, uh, powers that be, had to be forced to give us something. So one, one thing I will say this, I believe a lot of what we're seeing now is forced. So a lot of companies are now saying that they're doing campaigns to talk about racial injustice tonight. The NFL is coming out with stuff and they're being forced to make a statement. They're being forced to provide opportunities for people of color. So I will say that it's sad that they're being forced, but as people of color, we gotta take advantage of it, all right? Here's the reason why we gotta take advantage of it, because you said something about the, the wealth gap. Um, and I think we've need to, we need to close the gap. I think there needs to be, we need to take these opportunities and promote generational wealth. We've gotta be thinking about our children. How can I prepare and lay a foundation for them? Because again, we don't know if this opportunity is gonna present itself again. So we've gotta take advantage while, while they've been forced to give us certain opportunities. It's a sad reality, but I think we still can take advantage of it and then also close this wealth gap that you've been talking about if we can focus on generational wealth. I just wanna add one thing. When you think about the beauty standards and how they have changed recently in terms of where you know you had to be thin and you know you wanted to be light skinned and all that. Now, because of Beyonce and some other folks, they going out getting physical enhancements mm. so they can be um, curvy like us. You know, the whole movement back to natural hairstyle, yeah. you know, is because our image. I mean, this is something we started in the 60s. You know, and, and, and it's becoming natural because we don't have to do all that stuff to be acceptable. So we are learning to love ourselves Amen. more. Amen. Thank you so much for that, Minister West. Uh, Mr. Armani, uh, when you look at the state of people of color, when you look at the current state of racism and racial injustice, what do you see? Where do we stand? What does your heart say concerning that? Well, in regards to people of color, um, that varies. But in regards to people of African descent, 
Now that's a whole different story. Mm. Uh, it is severe. It has always been severe uh, and continues to be severe. What I would say is that uh, you see some thawing occurring because of technology. What individuals have done with just a little cell phone taking pictures of injustice in process. If you did not have those images of those law enforcement officials squatting down on the nape of George Floyd, most of America would never believe it. They would say he did something wrong um, to deserve that. If they didn't have the image of Eric Gardner, they would say he did something wrong to deserve that. So in that regard, that we must um, continue to, to master all of the tools that are available um, to us, even to the extent with technology, with what you are doing here uh, um, um, today. So we have that going on. Again, the system is, is rigged, and, and it, it's, it's to get you every kind of way they can, to take black males, black females off the street, to put drugs into the community, to feed kids drugs in the school system. You know what I'm saying? You know, um, it just hurt my heart, Pastor, when I read the story about Fannie Lou Hamer, how they committed a um, 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 hysterectomy on her, that she couldn't even have any children, and how they just beat her in jail. And that's just one story. And you know, and these stories are coming out all the time. So we have work to be done. And it's severe, but we are not defeated. We've been knocked down, but we have not been knocked out. And I think they know that, and we need to know that ourselves, and we need to keep pressing on, keep marching on, uh, and tell no lies, and claim no easy victories. Amen. Because you, we may have made some progress, but I won't call it no full-fledged victory. I, so you 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 right on the tipping point of where we need to be, and I think you're gonna close us out with this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it on to Minister Sharon West. But I want you to speak to this issue, and then I want you to give me some final takeaways, some final remarks, because here's what we're trying to do: yeah. we want to we want to create continual progress, okay. and then here's the other piece: not only for our people, but how do we create some level of progress in unifying um, races? So it's not simply a black and white issue, a black versus white issue, but how can we come together, uh, understanding our historical background, how can we now move forward in terms of unity? But I wanna ask you this question before you go to that. In terms of, you're in higher education, um, I want you to speak to that because uh, Minister Sharon West really spoke to public housing and she's a, a professional in that area, expertise, uh, has a level of expertise in that area. In terms of, education, um, where do you see the gap between people of color and their other, and other counterparts, um, uh, racial counterparts? Do you see, and even, could you speak from this from um, an achievement standpoint, and can you also speak to this from um, where we have levels of authority in education, where we can make some policy decisions, where we, we're at an administrative level? Do you see us making progress in that aspect as well? Yeah, well, let me just say this about education, and that's something that's dear to my heart. Um, uh, and you were saying people of color.
So, you know, there's a saying that says if you keep doing the same thing, um, you can expect the same thing. Well, I like to add a twist to it and say that you keep doing the same thing, there's no guarantee you're going to get the same thing. You may get less. Mm. So I, I think that we continue to press um, education, but an education that helps perpetuate the best of who we are as humans to build the best communities, the best society to bring good into the world, not a, a destructive kind of education that makes you go around and destroy your community and shoot up your community and not want to be responsible in relationships and, and partnerships and don't want to make commitments to organizations and be leaders and say, I'm not perfect, but I can do something. I have these, these talents. I'll bring this um, to the organization. And whatever you need, Pastor Bab, uh, um, just let me know and I, I'll help you out. Well, I appreciate that. And I think this whole discussion has been uh, solution-oriented. We talked about some severe natures of, our, of where we stand, but it's, it's, it's confirming for me uh, because I'm, as, as a pastor, one of the things that I know Minister Sharon West, we've had this conversation, I want to provide public housing. Well, not public housing, but affordable, affordable housing. housing. I want to provide educational institutions for our community. So those are things as as a local body that we're going to be striving for, and I'm, I'm saying this to our audience, there's pastors on here, we've got to be taking this knowledge and now saying how can we make a level of impact in our local bodies and in the local communities that we serve to mitigate a lot of these um, issues that we're seeing. So, Mr. Amani, give us, give me some closing remarks. What do we need to do? How do we move forward? And then, Minister Sharon West, give me some closing remarks. Don't leave us in this place of dreariness, where we're, we're, we're people of hope, where can we go forward and how can we um, make things better for people of color? Well, like you say, Mr. Armani, especially African-Americans. Okay, first of all, I, I would say that um, since I'm in education, I, I will put um, emphasis on, on education that we um, reclaim our communities, reclaim our, the responsibility of educating our, our children. Um, you know, I know there's a whole lot of talk about charter schools, private schools, and different things, but whatever it takes to educate our kids properly, that's what we need to do. And also, we need to send a message to them that regardless of what um, the coronavirus is doing, we can't use that as an excuse not to give our very, very best, that they are supposed to be competing at all times, um, you can't talk about that. I'm sitting there. I'm tired. I'm just exhausted from being on Zoom. No, let somebody else be exhausted. Yeah. But you make sure you work until you have developed mastery of the skills that are required. The adult community has to address development of some kind of systematic economic program system um, in the community. We don't have an economic system of, of restaurants in our community. That's nationwide. I mean, just some of the basic things where we go and let other people feed us, that we can't, you know, feed ourselves and create jobs for one another. Um, so, you know, that's another area that I would say. And the, and the, and the last thing is, um, you know, strengthening the families um, and building and, and bringing the guys back um, in the families. I'm holding them responsible. I, you know, I know when I was coming up as a kid and, you know, if a guy did something, uh, one of the old deacons would say something to you. You, you didn't want to hear, 
But when you got older, you realized that um, he was correct. Yes, sir. And you had a great deal of appreciation. So, in closing, putting the authority back into the community. I appreciate that. I, and I keep hearing this in my spirit. We suffered, we survived, yet we can still be successful. It's not an excuse. And I think we can still yet be successful. And I think you both are testaments to that. Uh, final remarks, Minister West. Okay. I just want to uh, add something to him about what he said about uh, higher education. When I went to the University of Buffalo, there were 50 black students, and most of them came from New York City. Now there are over 3,000 students, and many of the colleges opened up. We were fortunate in New York State to have um, Deputy Speaker Arthur O.E., who created a program called the uh, EOP program, in which 200,000 people have, were able to go to school and get their bachelor's and uh, master's degree with financial assistance. This is before Pell and all those grants were available. And that opened up the door to a black middle class and helped us move up in terms of um, being successful. What I want to leave you with is Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. Because when you read this letter that was written in 1963, you will realize it is still so relevant today. He was arrested because he violated the law of doing public civil rights demonstrations. They were banned in that city. The, he was criticized by white religious leaders as being an outside agitator and, um, and using methods that he did to achieve um, civil rights for black folks. His response was, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice for everyone. No single gains in civil rights without legal, without legal and nonviolent uh, pressure. History has shown the tragic story that privileged groups, and he used the word privilege back then, seldom give up the privileges to voluntarily. For years, he was told wait, which means never. There are two kinds of laws, he said, the just and the unjust. Church leaders told their congregations to obey the, civil, um, the Supreme Court decision in 1954 to desegregate the schools, but they did not accept their Negro brothers with love. So although you said obey the law, you didn't show God's love. Nothing about social um, disobedience is new. The three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, I think it was uh, King Nebuchadnezzar disobeyed them. Early Christians faced hungry lions and death because they would not submit to um, Roman unjust laws. Southern leaders comply with desegregation laws, but it's the laws that they have long, we long to hear them. Follow this decree because integration is morally right. And in other words, stop standing on the sidelines and mouthing empty words um, that are not in your heart. He felt churches were part of the problem. So my church to the church is both black and white. Do not, do we not serve the same God? Say the greatest commandment is to love your brother. Last week, Pastor, you talked about the Good Samaritan and how the priests and Levites passed him 
on the side of the road when he was stripped of his clothing, beaten, and left for half dead. The Samaritan was the one who stopped and helped his enemy. Jesus said, asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, your neighbor is the one who shows mercy. Action, not just empty words. So I challenge us to engage and be the cause of change, culturally, socially, economically. Be the change that you know that is right and is in God's word. I am enthused that the young people have taken up the banner. The black and white people, are, are young people are out there. Millenniums are leading the cause. Now, we as a church need to catch up and do our part and seeing that this is followed through. And this is just not another moment of history that we have to go and revisit that some progress was made, but the root was not pulled out from the ground. And that's what we need is that root of that original sin of the United States to be pulled out and eradicated permanently. Because I know they got to be tired of doing it. You know, as tired as we are, that that's what I see the young people say, we're not going to let this go forward. You know, and so that's why I'm encouraged. But we also need to have a better recognition, as you said, of our history so we understand where we came from. You know, and, and the trials and tribulations that we, we went through, that we know who we are. And so they can also understand what their ancestors put us through. I, I appreciate you guys so much. I think the wealth of knowledge that you shared today and share with our audience, we're going to make sure that this message gets out, not to those who just watched today, but we're going to premiere this. We're going to edit it. We're going to make it look uh, very presentable so that we can send it out again because we know others are probably in their own worship services. So we need to, the church needs to hear. You said that, Minister Sharon West. I think here's what uh, Reverend Al Sharpton said. He said, get your knees off of our neck. So as, as people see that people of color, especially African-Americans, that someone has their knee on our neck, we can't pass by the other side. Uh, we cannot ignore this issue. The church has to catch up. And I believe many churches that don't necessarily look like the African-American church has passed by on the other side while somebody has had, our, had their knee on our neck. Um, so thank you so much. We'll, we'll continue to deep dive into our history. I pray uh, that many of you were able to, uh, to glean a lot of wisdom from this, uh, this dialogue. Please share this dialogue. Again, we'll probably premiere it again on Tuesday evening so that many of you uh, can invite your colleagues, invite your friends, invite those that don't look like you so that we can all have a historical perspective on where we come from so that we can begin the healing that is so necessary. And Minister Sharon West said something so critical. We've got to pull it from the root. Uh, we don't want to revisit this issue. We want to pull it from the root. So let us go to God in prayer. Thank you again to my panelists. Um, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you. We honor you and we bless you. We thank you, God, that you are yet the God of justice. As Minister Sharon West said, you are even the God of love. God, can the church catch up today? God, um, whenever there's injustice anywhere, it's a threat to justice everywhere. So, God, um, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. So, God, allow us to now unify as the body of Christ. God, thank you for our history. Yes, it was, it's been severe, but as my panelists 
have already articulated. We've suffered, we've survived, and they are successful. They've been successful, God, and we want the entire um, people, especially African Americans, God, to although we may suffer, we can yet survive it. And God, you can cause us to have great success. We love you, we adore you. Let us continue to have these conversations because the truth is the only thing that will make us free. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and every heart that believes that amen. Amen. I'm confident that you didn't stumble upon this podcast by accident because God is sovereign. And whenever our sovereign God sends us a message for a reason, he wants us to respond. My prayer is that you respond by allowing the word to be planted in you so that it produces God's will for your life. Until next time, strive to not simply come to church, but to become the church.